Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Alrighty, so if you're uh, joining us here for the first time this morning, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Pastor Ben, along with Pastor Emma. We get to lead this amazing church family of our life here on the North Shore. And uh, we are doing a series. We've been going through a series called Holy Ghost Stories. Uh, and we're talking about the relevancy and the need for spirit-filled, spirit-led lives. And that the Holy Spirit is the gift in which God, uh, which Jesus spoke about as the perfect gift that was being given to us from Father in Heaven so that we would not just be uh, believers, but we'd be effective communicators and witnesses in the world that we're living in. I'm going to do a quick synopsis of what we went through the last two weeks for those of you that might have missed it. Um, and those who were here that have probably maybe possibly forgotten, I just need reminding, no judgment. Um, so we talked about the, rea- the reality that the Spirit is in the world today. Uh, we talked about how uh, the, the, the Spirit was uh, present in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit baptism was present in the Old Testament, that it's present in the New Testament, that most of the New Testament apostles and writers uh, spoke about it. There was only three books that didn't speak about it, and it's the small ones, but they did infer. Um, and then we also spoke about that it was a distinct interaction between the Holy Spirit and the person receiving the Holy Spirit. So that it wasn't a concept of maybe or I hope so. It was I was definitely filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and then we spoke about the realities that uh, that that Jesus uh, said that it was a gift from the Father, that, that the Holy Spirit is a part of the God uh, Trinity, the, the triune Godhead, that he wasn't separated so that he could be on here on earth, but that he's, he's omnipresent, that he is in heaven, he is here on earth, and he's inside our hearts, uh, God with us and God in us. Um, and then we also spoke about uh, the reality and the, the concepts that it comes around being baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, through New Testament understandings. And now we're going to just dive really deep into that. Um, Wow, Amos, can we get a bit of that reverb down or whatever's happening, feedback? It's going to make me go deaf. Um, We also spoke about that there's more to the Holy Spirit than what's necessarily communicated um, or has been communicated in the last few decades. Uh, I grew up, I was born into the AOG movement, Pentecostal movement. I grew up uh, a Pentecostal, spent some time in the Baptist church. That's where I got my Bible college degree. Um, I was only like six at the time, but who knows if you've been to a Baptist church, it's like doing Bible college. Um, even in their Sunday school, like you had like 10 memory verses that you had to bring back the next week and have it memorized. Um, I look back now, I used to hate it because you just sit there and you repeat it. But I look back now and a lot of my, my known scriptures from that time within the Baptist church. Um, which led me down the path of realizing that in many ways, uh, as a spirit-filled movement, uh, Pentecostal movement or charismatic movement, wherever you sit on that spectrum, um, that there is a desire within our church globally for uh, uh, an educating of biblical concepts that we wouldn't be as biblically illiterate as a movement. Everyone's like, we're not biblically illiterate. And I'm like, we are. Um, trust me. Um, but that's not a bad thing because I really do believe that God is stirring within a, the spirit-filled movement this re-education, this re-understanding of how the Holy Spirit and, and, and why we rely on Him and how He's actually expressed throughout Scripture. Because um, what took place, and to be completely honest, is that we saw this revival happen and the birthing of the Pentecostal movement in its modern-day expression. Uh, and it was birthed through men and women that had a great insight 
of the word. But inherently, as a movement, we believe in being spirit-filled and spirit-led. What that led to was us spending less time in the word and assuming that, that God was speaking completely to us outside of his word. Um, and therefore, it was like all revelation-based and not necessarily scripture-filtered. And so we're dealing with that over the last few weeks. And today, we're going to be talking about what is baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, tonight at five o'clock we have our encounter service we'll be baptizing people in the immersion of water as well as believing for the baptism in the holy spirit we're going to talk about this i just want to give this as a caveat you can be baptized in the holy spirit at any moment you ask for it after you've said yes to jesus and been baptized in the water then it can come um and, and we're going to talk about how this takes place uh, but right now i want you guys to be open and understanding that I know, statistically speaking, percentage-wise, the majority of us have not had a distinct baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's not out of judgment. That's out of me telling you, let's just first recognize where we are so that we know where we want to go. Uh, I, I know it sounds weird. I have a few hobbies that I do, or I used to do. I collect teapots. We all know that. That's fine. Don't judge. I love tea. I'm half Indian. Can't get the tea out of me. I love it. So I collect teapots. Um, but the second thing that you probably don't know about me is that for some reason, when I was five years old, my mum and dad decided that the sport I was going to do as a kid was orienteering. <laughs> like, uh, you know what's going to be best for our child right now? Give him a map, give him a compass, let him run off into the bush and be by himself for a few hours and hopefully he'll return. <laughs> That's what they decided was a good sport for me. Um, and so, believe it or not, for years, I mean years, I did orienteering, competitively did orienteering. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a competition out there, right? Yeah, we, I laughed at the time, you all laugh now, but we lost in some way, you're going to want me to read your map, trust me. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what everything on that map means, because believe, we, we look at that map and you see, oh, there's a mountain. I can read the contours, I can read if that's a gully, if that is some sort of man-made object what the tree line looks like, simply by looking at the map given to us. All these talents I never thought I needed. I really don't need it. Um, Google made orienteering irrelevant. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I say that because one of the things they teach you when you are learning orienteering is that when you get lost, so who here knows what orienteering is about? Outside of go, yeah. So what they do is um, some crazy person goes out and puts these markers, and I mean like kilometers apart, and you've got to then go use your map, and on your map, the markers are indicated. You've got to use just the map and a compass to run and punch holes from each marker. And each marker has a particular pattern, so they know that you've went to the right marker. And they have to be in the right sequence. Um, and whoever can do that the fastest wins. And so you, you get sent off at like 10-minute intervals. If you get overtaken, shame on you. Um, but there comes times where you're lost. You're like, oh, I'm, not where, I'm not meant to be where I'm meant to be. I'm, I'm not sure where I am. And the advice is, and, the, and what you need to do, and they teach you this, is go back to your last known place of origin, where you knew exactly where you were, that there was no doubt that this is where you are on the map, and go from there. Because there's a real danger you're going to get stuck out there overnight. So you just, it stops being a game and trying to win, and now it just becomes a, let's survive this. Um, <laughs> And in the same sense, I want to encourage you this morning, don't feel as if I'm judging you or this church is judging you because you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's me just saying, identify where you are, be truthful, because at the end of the day, we want you to encounter the Holy Spirit in the baptism. I want that for you. As a church, we want that for you. God wants that for you. But it takes a moment of truth and go, yeah, I don't think I've had that distinct moment. 
I need to go back to my last known place of origin. And we're going to talk about how that looks. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the second encounter with God. I should turn my Wi-Fi off. It keeps getting all these dominoes advertising. The first makes me hungry. We're breaking our fast today, right? So I'm like, oh, yeah, pepperoni. <laughs> this is the first conversion. This is when we say yes to Jesus. That's our first encounter. The second encounter is when the Holy Spirit uh, baptizes us. And so uh, Christians need to begin by receiving the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that happens in conversion. So when you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. This is not the baptism. Uh, Jesus promised this power to his disciples when he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. This promise was fulfilled at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 gathered in the upper room. They all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues and the Spirit, as the Spirit gave them utterance, Acts 2.4. So that is talking about when we say yes to Jesus, we begin to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost was the beginning of every believer that says yes to Jesus having access to the Holy Spirit. The second experience of the power of God, which we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is given for the purpose of equipping a Christian with God's power for service. So it's the spiritual baptism from Jesus himself in which he begins to exercise his sovereign possession, guidance and control, the use of us in supernatural fashions through the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to illustrate this really quickly uh, just through a few scripture verses, um, just so you can understand what I'm saying here. So let's point out what the New Testament describes as water baptism as well as a Holy Spirit baptism. So in Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We see this echoed in Acts 1, 4 to 5, where uh, they write, Jesus says, for, the, for John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When Peter gets up uh, at his first sermon after the, the Pentecost moment, um, he says, repent and be baptized, which is water baptism, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 2, 38. And so clearly in Scripture, in the New Testament, God gives us insight on what needs to take place. There is that, that is the identification that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You then have the water baptism, which is your remission of sins, where you say the old self has passed away. I now identify in the death and resurrection of Christ. I am now a new creation. That's why we get water baptized. And then after that, there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is your second encounter. Now, to be completely honest with you, um, I do believe that the Holy Spirit can encounter you without your water baptism. That's true. So I'm not saying you need to be water baptized to be encountered by the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus clearly states that the pathway, the normal pathway for all of us, is to be yes to Jesus, water baptized, remission of sin, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and for the most of that part, that's what we do. That's why we say, hey, have you been water baptized? That's why tonight we're baptizing amazing family members of this church in, in water and believing at the same time that those that have been baptized, those that are wanting their baptism in the Holy Spirit, that that'll happen tonight as well. If you've never been baptized in water, you're an adult, you said yes to Jesus, can I, can I encourage you that that's a step of faith that you need to take? Jesus says that you need to be baptized in water. There needs to be that remission, that, that public identification, uh, not for salvation, but for the concept that you are now redeemed, so that people know that you've been redeemed, that you identify in that redemption. 
So we've got that, and then we've got in the second part, uh, we've got the, the whole concept of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, according to Scripture, uh, both these types of baptisms uh, are separate baptisms. They're major expressions and major experiences of God's power. You need to have experienced this. You, if you have not had the desire to experience this, my hope for you today is that you would leave with the desire that there is more out there in God than simply trying to live the best life you can live and survive in a world that's slowly dying. That's not what God asked us to do. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to be the answer, bringing the gospel. He wants us to be the witness. He wants us to be the hands and feet that bring the redemptive work of Christ into this world. We're not here as Christians to sit in the pews and go, this world is burning anyway, so let's just eat some popcorn and watch it, knowing that we're safe. That's not what he asked of us. He wanted us to know that in him, he's actually redeeming this world, that he is bringing a hope, that he is bringing salvation, and that there is going to be a second coming. There's going to be a complete resurrection, a new heaven and a new earth. And therefore, our work on this side of eternity is a must. It needs to happen now. And so he wants to do that through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if the first conversion and the water baptism clearly states to everybody that I've been redeemed... I am now an object of redemption. Then the second time we get baptized, baptized in the Holy Spirit, through, uh, is, brought, is designed to bring us into a deeper, more transparent relationship with Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so we go from being an object of redemption, which is, yes, I've been saved by Jesus, I'm born again, new creation, to being an instrument of redemption, which means your job is to be an effective witness of the gospel and he ordained that baptism of the holy spirit to empower you with gifts so that you could be that effective witness that's why we constantly tell people you're not going to argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven doesn't work that way he didn't say i need you to be a lawyer for the gospel he said i want you to be a witness a witness simply testifies of what they've seen experienced in their life that's all we need to do and so he says i want to fill you with my spirit so when you actually begin to to, to take witness you take the stand and begin to testify of what god's done in your life you're going to begin to operate in these skills and these gifts that actually make you supernaturally effective you're going to see and know and and have insight into things that you didn't have before words you say now carry more authority when you pray, and the Bible says you've got to pray for this, your prayers begin to shift. They carry more authority. When you speak into people's lives, when you get insight, you begin to carry more authority. This is the whole idea of empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So this is the scriptural breakdown of the two baptisms. And I say this to the 9 a.m. I say it to you now. We're doing this just so you know I'm not speaking heresy, that it's found in the Bible and it's clearly stated. And any one of you could go read this. And you'd come out with the same outcomes. So the first one is the Christian baptism by the immersion of water. Number one, the candidate is the penitent believer, the one who's repentive and come to Christ. Matthew 28, 19, Acts 2, 38. Number two, the baptismal element is water. The water is used to signify the grave, death and resurrection. That's why we immerse you, just as if Jesus was immersed into death and was resurrected, so are we. So we're identifying his life, death and resurrection. Number three, the baptizer is a man or woman, preacher, evangelist, deacon, or somebody of good stead in their faith, Acts 8.38. Number four, the purpose, a witness to conversion, 
and a remission of sin. We want people to know that I am now a believer in Christ. That's your outward confession. And that I've been saved. I'm, I'm free from the shackles of sin. And you can read about that in Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16. And then the result, salvation and entry into the body of Christ. Now, we say salvation and entry. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. This is not what we're saying. It's just that you're identifying that you're saved. You're identifying you're a part of the body. That's the outcome, is that identification. When you say yes to Jesus before baptism, you are saved. You're a part of the body of Christ. It's like going, it's realizing who your family is and being, okay, I'm now adopted. This is my dad. This is my family. That's what the baptism is saying. It's saying, I know that I've been adopted. I've been in, I'm adopted back into the house. I have full authority as a son or a daughter of Christ. This is my family. That's what being baptized in the immersion of water means. Then we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the candidate is the baptized believer, Acts 30, so Acts 2, 38, Acts 8, 14 to 17. And then we have the baptismal element, which is the Holy Spirit, Mark 1, 8. The baptizer, Jesus Christ, Matthew 3, 11, Mark 1, 8. And number four, the purpose is to endue the Christian or the believer disciple with the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1, 8 and Luke 24, 49. And the result is the reception of the Holy Spirit with the accompanying gifts and the empowerment, Acts 2, 4, Acts 8, 14, 17, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 13, and yell out if you've got bingo. All the young guys, what's bingo? <laughs> wow. So, if you thought I was making it up, go read all of that. But see that the Word of God, the guiding light, clearly states there's two separate encounters that take place, um, though the Holy Spirit is present from the moment of conversion. You need to know that. Don't ever think that you need to be baptized to be saved, and don't ever think that the Holy Spirit only encounters you if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is not what the Lord is trying to point out here. What he's saying is there's two separate encounters. One of them is the remission of sin and the understanding that you're now an object of redemption. The other one is I've now been empowered and I'm an instrument of redemption. Is that cool? Does that make sense? All right. I thought it'd be good to take some time right now. Wow. Some background information on the history of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so if you're searching for any history when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, honestly, you don't need to look any further than the New Testament for your initial interaction with what the Holy Spirit uh, was trying to do and is still doing and has done in and through the church. Uh, the book of Acts is filled with the, 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 the incoming Holy Spirit and how he empowered the early church, new believers, to spread their faith, be a witness. Uh, and because of this, they encountered uh, miracles, they encountered what Jesus had promised them, and, and, uh, and it, was, it was pretty unorderly. It was not, there was no structure to it at the time. Uh, but when you read the book of Acts, you quickly understand why the Pentecostal church today wants to be known as the same as the New Testament church in the New Testament, and why we proudly proclaim that we are, as much as possible, trying to operate in the Spirit. Because when you look at what took place, you want to be a part of that. In the New Testament, the New Testament church was an exciting church. It was a powerful church. By today's standards, it may have been crude, undisciplined, and at times shockingly irreverent. But those are not the things one noticed when one reads the books of Acts. What grips our imagination is not the lack of prestige, it's not the pompous piety or, or, or how well they were dressed. What grips our imagination is the demonstration of God's power. What happened to the church where we went from being 
more concerned with the power of God than the presentation of a service. The Bible says that in that day, God moved in response to prayer. Miracles attended the saving power of Christ within the spreading fires of the church's influence. So this is what I'm saying here. When they prayed, then God moved. You need to know how to pray. When we get baptized in the Holy Spirit, our prayer life should explode. We should be more dependent. We should understand and have more understanding when it comes to praying and the power of prayer. You can't shift anything in your life if you don't pray. Prayer equals purpose. Purpose equals power. And so we know at the end of the day, we should be praying. We should be giving God time. We should be asking through our communication with Him for things to shift and change. When I was, you know, when I was growing up, I'm still growing up. But I used to think to myself, and I used to be told, there's that whole, that whole concept that there's prayer warriors, people who know what God's given them, people who understand the authority and they pray in that authority. They're a warrior. They're a prayer warrior. And then there's prayer warriors, people who are worried, people are fearful, people are anxious. And so we spend, you know, we talk about warriors, just prayers about things you don't want to happen. Who here spends most of their time praying, God, please don't let this happen. But yet there's no signs that anything's actually going to happen. We're just worried. We're just anxious. But the Bible says, Peter, uh, Paul writes this, be anxious for nothing. That doesn't mean that you should go through life and not realize that things, there's, there's things to be anxious for. He says, don't just commit your life worrying about things that haven't actually come to fruition. And so when he says, well, you know, when we read the scripture and says, God is moved by the response of prayer, stop living a prayer life that is reactive to what's happening and start living a prayer life that begins to take the offensive, begins to believe for more. See, true faith is not responding to problems in our life. True faith is claiming what has been provided through the promise and is yet to come. That's, that's true faith. It takes less faith to understand that God can fix your situation now. It takes more faith that God's fixed your situation to come. And so when we pray... We begin to summon the Holy Spirit. And so the early church, not only were the lost redeemed, but the lame walked, the blind received sight, the oppressed found deliverance and liberty from the principalities of darkness. Though the fellowship of believers admittedly was imperfect, it was vibrant and dynamically alive. It was vibrant and alive. I love our church. Our church is vibrant and alive. I want it to be more vibrant and I want it to be more alive. I want it to be something that when we come to when we come together it, the energy is just pulsating because we have this combined expectation that God is on the move not only in our life but collectively in our city, in our province, in our nation of Canada that he's using us to shift the spiritual uh, atmosphere from something that's oppressive to something that is found in liberty in Jesus. You need to know that you're not a drop in the bucket. That's not what God doesn't say we're all just little drops in the bucket. He says, actually, when we come together, there's an exponential power and authority that begins to take place. So if one could put a thousand to flight, but two can put 10,000 to flight, then what can 300 people on the North Shore of Vancouver do? What can he do? Well, he's looking for people to say, Lord, I'm an empty vessel. Fill me with your spirit. May you help me. May you help my friends, my fellow Christians make a difference on the North Shore. May I be a witness that brings glory to your name. Holy Spirit, would you echo through my life, through my action, through my discipline, the redemptive work of Christ? 
Would I be a role model to this society I live in? Would I not be the hypocrite that on one hand says you need Jesus, but on the other hand rejects him? The Bible says that the only thing that can quench the move of the Spirit in your life, like dampen it down or even remove it, is the returning of sin. I know we live in a world where it's like grace, grace, grace. You're saved. Don't stress about that if you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, maybe stress. You're saved. You have the full grace that comes with being saved, and that's amazing, and we love God for it. But at the end of the day, the power that comes through our salvation that we have in Jesus is either quenched or spurred on by living a godly life, a righteous life, living a just, principled life, and then you're going to see the Holy Spirit because he feeds on that. He's looking for that pure vessel. That's why we come to Jesus and say, God, Jesus, would you forgive us of our sins? Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to say what, what David writes. He says, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. What, what does he say next? Renew a right spirit. Take not from me the joy of your salvation. He says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a... Oh, what a beautiful psalm. He says, take not your spirit from me. That tells us that, and he's saying this from his attitude. David is writing about this by the way he was living. Do you know what he was saying? He, he, I had, he had identified at this moment in his leadership that he was making the same mistakes that Saul has made. And the Bible said Saul made these mistakes. He put himself as number one. He became sinful and he expected to live in a sinful life and still have power and authority that came with the Spirit. And the Bible says that God removed his spirit from, uh, from Saul and he gave it to David. David was making the same mistakes as Saul, but David makes this prayer when he has this self-realization. He says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Don't, re don't remove your spirit from me, please. I'm sorry. I know what happened to Saul. I'm going to turn from that way and I'm going to live the life you've asked me to live. Renew that right spirit in me. Center me. That's the best part of coming to Jesus daily and say, hey, center me, create in me a clean heart. I want the empowerment, the continual empowerment of the Holy Spirit. None of this has anything to do with salvation. It has everything to do with your effective living witness for God. I'm going to skip through some stuff just because, yeah, we're out of time. That's amazing. So we can look at the early church. But if we compare the New Testament church with ours today, it seems obvious that one or two things must have happened. Either God deliberately deprived the church of the power of Pentecost with all its supernatural gifts and powers. And this is something that's taught regularly, by the way. It's called dispensation, where after a hundred years of the church being uh, grown and flourishing... Uh, the, the, the theology behind this is that the reason we don't have the move of the Holy Spirit as we did back in the early church is because God removed the Holy Spirit so that we now, in our own strength, could run church. Now that it had become a political system, God wasn't needed anymore because apparently politics is the answer to this earth. Yeah? No. Come on. That's a terrible idea. Or this is the other option. That the church somehow lost contact with our Pentecostal heritage. 
with our spirit-filled experiences, something that's vital for the birth, growth, and expansion of the church. And if I haven't made this clear already, obviously the second proposition is the one that I believe is true. Actually, the resurgence of the Pentecostal church today, resurgence of Pentecostal power in the day that we live in actually proves that the church needs more than ever the Holy Spirit. See, even if we took a hasty survey of church history, and you can, you can just Google it, clearly it indicates that the charismatic gifts never completely died out of the church, though it was consistently ignored by mainstream theology. It has always been present, blazing up into public view during times of renewed religious fervor and revival, these gifts of the Spirit. So, for example, back in the second century, a revival in the church led by Montanaeus captured the attention of many Christians who fell, felt that the spiritual fires within the church were burning way too low. During the peak of the revival, all the charismatic gifts appeared, including speaking in tongues. This is second century stuff. Two renowned church fathers, Tertullian and Irenaeus, found much in the movement was favorable, meaning theologically okay. But the church officiandom in Rome considered the revival to be a threat to its own authority and they declared it heresy. When I was younger, especially through the ages of like 13 to 15, I loved to read on the toilet. Oh, wow. Teapots, orienteering, toilet reading. Who here identifies, especially when you I came from a big family, five kids, uh, but, uh, you know, parents would understand, how good is toilet time? You'll just find a reason to go to the toilet, even if you don't need to go. Just, oh, I need some break. Just go there and just, yeah. And I would take, back in the day before internet was a big thing or dial-up was happening and I didn't have hours to read, um, you know, and made all that, like, demonic noises. Would give me nightmares as a kid. Um... I would just, we had like that massive collection of world book encyclopedias. You know what I'm talking about? Like it used to be a thing that you'd have them in your lounge room and everyone knew that you were pretend educated. And um, so I read the whole lot within a year by just going to the toilet and reading. And it's pretty interesting. A lot of my general knowledge just comes from reading the encyclopedia. But if you were to read the encyclopedia and when it comes to speaking in tongues, it would tell you that this recurs in Christian revivals in every age. We're not going through something that hasn't happened for 2,000 years. Actually, the charismatic Pentecostal movements have, have, have tried and failed in every age, except for this one. There was revival amongst the, uh, the mendicant friars in the 13th century. There was revival in early Quakers, the converts of Wesley and Whitefield, the persecuted Protestants of Conveners and the Irvingites. These are all from different revival periods in history and all of them speak of the gifts of the spirit and then the pentecostal movement in north america and its beginnings in the year 1900 with the with this young methodist minister named charles f parham who recaptured the power and vitality of the church of the new testament so opening up a bible school in an abandoned mansion imagine that that would be awesome in Topeka, Kansas, he and his students committed themselves to a thorough study of the scripture to try and discover the secret to apostolic power. So he is, his students are desperate 
to have what the Bible says is our heritage. We're meant to have it now. He's like, okay, if we're meant to have it now, what is going on? So in December that year, Parham gave his students an assignment to study every account of the Holy Spirit being received in the book of Acts to discover if there was some sort of factor that had been overlooked common to all those experiences. The students, each going their own way independently, all came back with the same conclusion. Five times in the book of Acts, there is an account of the Holy Spirit being received. And three of these accounts, four if you include Paul's uh, conversion, there was the appearance of the gift of tongues. So the, the, the students assumed that since Paul had the gift of tongues and testified to it, in his first Corinth letter, that it probably came at the time when he received the Holy Spirit. This is why we call it inferred doctrine. Pentecostals, we believe, or there is this long-going thread that you need to be able to speak in tongues to prove that as the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's called inferred doctrine. The reason why that's there is that it's the most noticeably physically that you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so we're not using this as an absolute measure that you have to have it it's just more often than not when somebody gets baptized they begin the pursuit in finding the gifts of tongues so back by this scriptural evidence parham and his students prayed to uh, to receive the baptism of the holy spirit and they chose to pray that it would come with the gift of tongues hear my language there that he they chose that they wanted the gifts to be the evidence for them. First person spoke in tongues on New Year's Eve, 1900. And then on the 3rd of January, Parham and a number of others also received the baptism and spoke in tongues. So from that modest beginning, then the revivals were spread six years later to California, touching off the flame of Azusa Street Revival. This is the, the, the famous Azusa Street Revival. This is where a lot of Pentecostal movements find their origin. This is William J. Seymour, a partially blind African-American who moved to, to Azusa Street, who started a house uh, prayer meeting with uh, old, uh, elderly uh, African-American women. And in that moment, revival was birthed. God doesn't need a stage, doesn't need working or not working. Oh, it's working screens. Not working or working screens. He doesn't, those things are all great, but that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for the fuel of believers that he can burn on. That's what he's wanting is that desperation, that expectation. And in Azusa Street, this is what takes place. And for three years, they have revival and thousands of people from all over North America receive their Pentecostal experience. And then they take what they receive. And the Bible, the Bible tells us that once we receive that Holy Spirit, we become this powerful witness. And this is what took place. They became a powerful witness right across North America you know, and across the globe. Pentecostal movement grew at, a, grew at a phenomenal rate, spreading rapidly across the world. In just over 50 years, membership reached nearly 10 million people, which, by the way, is huge growth for the first part of the century. Strong on faith, short on patience, these small groups gave birth to what has now become an expression of faith that has over a billion people in this world within 100 years. Can I encourage you that the Holy Spirit's well and truly alive, church? That he's raising up his church to be spirit-led and spirit-fed. And that the greatest revival story that the church has ever seen was not in Acts. We're living it now. How exciting is that? We're living 
a greater revival now in our time than the church had at the start. This is the greatest comeback story of any faith, where people said the church was close to extinction. The church has grown at a rate faster, far greater than any other thought, belief or ideology. And it's not because the theology has been pumped into people's brains. It's because the spirit has lit a flame in our generation and it is spreading faster than we can try to quench. Here in the West, we struggle with this. But Christianity is no longer a Western religion. You need to understand this. People are sending missionaries to Canada. People are sending missionaries to the United States. People are sending missionaries to Europe and the United Kingdom. From where? From Africa, from Asia, from India, from South America. Why? Because the majority of Christians, spirit-filled Christians that exist on this earth, don't live in Western countries. That's the reality. How amazing is that? That there's something, there's something God wants to do in this nation. There's something that God wants to do in this city. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. There's something that God wants to ignite in North Vancouver. And I believe this. Our story as a church, what God has done with us, what, how he started this church, is nothing short of a miracle it has nothing to do with what man can do. Has done. It has everything to do with what God can do. And I look at our story. I look how he awoke in Emma and I on the other side of the world. I love that I get to go back to Australia and I'm classified a missionary. You beaut. Go there, everyone. Everyone's like, oh, you're a missionary. I'm like, it's actually better over there. But anyway, <laughs> I don't tell them that. I want them to feel sorry for me. But God's doing something here. He birthed something here in a mines that were thousands of kilometers away. If you call Avant Life Church home, you need to know right now that you're a part of something that's going to change this nation. That he's doing something here on the North Shore that's going to bring hope, that's going to rise all tides and float all boats, that's going to allow churches in smaller communities to go, if he can do it in North Vancouver... He can do it anywhere. I tell people all the time, I look forward to the day when I go to a church planning conference and the young church planners say, well, Pastor Ben, you had it easy because North Vancouver is a Bible belt. I look forward to it, Pastor Ben, you had it easy because downtown Vancouver is the epicenter of revival. You had it easy, Pastor Ben. Oh, and I won't even correct them. I'll just take, take heart knowing that we were a part of that. We changed this city. We built this city on the things of God. We redesigned it, re-engineered it. We were a part of the spirit-fed, spirit-led community that believed for more, endured more, hoped for more, opened our hearts for more. We were the ones that laid down our lives for Jesus. We get to see in generations to come the hope for more because we did what needed to be done now. Church, what does the Holy Spirit need to do in your life now to awaken you from your slumber? The church in Canada is a sleeping giant that God is trying to stir. He's trying to awaken. He's trying to fill. But there's too many people who just think that all of this is about them. It's about what he can do for them, not what, he, what we can do for him, what we could do for others. You can't say yes to Jesus honestly and believe in his message and then go live for yourself. What did you say yes to? 
What part of the message ever said that? You can't go live in your nice homes and drive your nice cars and not believe that we have a purpose to change this broken, hurting nation, spiritually impoverished nation. You, we, we can't hide away and pretend that being isolated as Canadians in Vancouver is ever going to be the answer. They're patting ourselves of a movement now that's soon becoming a mausoleum because we don't let God actually stir something in our hearts. No matter your age, no matter your gender, no matter your race, God is asking you. He has called you out from darkness. He has given you a new name, a new identity. And in that name, which is the name of Jesus, the Bible says we have all authority on heaven and earth, that we would be filled with the Spirit so we can make a difference. Sitting here on a Sunday doesn't make a difference to the world. It should empower you to make a difference to the world. Church, would you stand with me this morning? Tonight we're going to be having, like I mentioned earlier, a Holy Spirit baptism service as well as a water baptism service. And I don't know what your plans are for this Sunday night, but at 5 o'clock I'd change them. I'd be present. I really do believe that after 21 days of fasting as a church corporately, that God is wanting to unleash something on this, this congregation. That he, he knows that anyone who chooses to be here will never be the same again. It's going to be a game changer. You're going to walk away with the empowerment. You're going to be walking away with the, being filled with the Spirit. That this is going to be one of those distinct moments for you individually, but for us as a church. I'm praying that this building will be packed, that we need people in the cafe. I pray that there's a desperation and a hunger for the Holy Spirit like never before. I pray that your age, that you don't disqualify yourself because you think you're too young. I pray that you don't think having a nice meal at a restaurant is more important. I pray that going up in the mountain is not as important as being here, knowing that what God wants to impart in you is going to sustain you into your decades to come. As a witness, you need to be here tonight. One, so that we can support our family that's getting baptized. But two, so that we can usher in a new age of the Holy Spirit into the North Shore. That this city will never be the same again. You are qualified because Jesus qualifies you. Don't feel like you can't be here because you've done all these bad things. Come as you are. Let's, just, let's see what Jesus does. Let's see what the Holy Spirit does. Church, we're going to go back into a time of worship. And I'm not going to ask you to pray for your needs. I'm not going to ask you to come before God and say, God, right now I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Though you could do that. It's up to you. What we're going to do right now is that we're going to believe that we're standing in a gap, that we're believing for our city. We're saying, God, would you use us as a conduit? Would you pour out into us like a vessel, your Holy Spirit, like this city, like this country, like this world has never seen before? And would it overflow? Would we be the ones to stand in the gap and pray for our family members and our neighbours that need Jesus? Would we be the ones that stand in the gap and pray for our city or our cities as we represent right across the lower mainland this morning? Would we be believing, God, I stand right now and I give you all the glory and all the honour because you are going to use us to make a difference to this province. You're going to use us right now. And as we sing this and as we stand and as we declare this, would you, would you sing this over your family? Would you sing it over your life? Would you sing it over this church? Would you sing it over the churches of the North Shore and Canada? Would you sing it over our community this morning? Would we believe that God is on the move still? That we are living right now the greatest revival story, the greatest comeback story the world has ever seen. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.